pack a bag with five gravity bongs in it. And I came away from that show with 300 accounts. Then I knew I had a business. Every single product in our catalog is handmade. We sell 15,000 of these units per year. These things in six months completely got me out of debt. The money is just a vehicle to get you to the next. When you get excited about something, you're going to push that pedal as hard as you can. And that's awesome and fun. And you'll ride that. Hello, Dave. How are you? Hello. Good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Um, whereabouts are you located? Was it Austin? Austin, Texas. Yep. How has it um, changed over the last two, three years, especially after COVID? I know I heard a lot of people move there. Um, Joe Rogan moved there. He brought a bunch of comedians. How's it um, now? Um, it is very interesting. I mean, I say that because it's um, it was a really big boom real estate market, and then it's kind of gotten you know also you know one of the biggest hits to the real estate market because of how hot it got. So it's been interesting. I mean, I think that that everybody in these in these cities like Austin and Miami and these cities that got you know that are are really popular to live in have. Uh, have had an, an interesting experience throughout COVID, but Austin's just a really nice, you know, small feeling city. And yeah, we know that we're now living a bunch of amongst a bunch of people who were potentially famous as our neighbors, but you know, it's not, it's not like we're gallivanting around, you know, California with, you know, famous people. So it's still pretty quiet as a city. Did you grow up in Austin? No, but I grew up in Texas. I did. I grew up in Houston, and I moved to Austin for for university in two thousand. Not sorry, nineteen ninety eight. Um, I graduated high school and then went to UT in Austin and stuck around after I finished. Basically, I mean, uh, uh, not dissimilar to you. I started a company right out of this. I started Grab right out of college, and so at at twenty three, I was you know already you know running this company. So. Oh, wow. Because I know it's been nearly 20 years, right? Grav.com? Almost 19, but yeah, almost 20. Wow. So you basically yeah. grew up with that. That's so freaking amazing. Dave, yeah. firstly, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I'm very excited to dig into your story today. Um, I guess to give the audience a bit of context, please tell us a bit about who you are and tell us a bit about um, Grav. And then I think... From there, I'll probably dive in a few different rabbit holes. Um, yeah, sure. Um, so thank you for having me. And uh, always excited to, to talk to a fellow entrepreneur. Um, I, um, God, you know, it's, it's, it's funny you ask, like, you know, tell me who, who am I? I've, you know, right now I would identify as, you know, primarily a dad, you know, I, I spend the majority of my time, I am lucky enough to spend a, a lot of time with my kids now. And um, I still have a, an immense amount of time that I spend professionally in cannabis as a whole, meaning that I serve on the board of a public cannabis company. I have several advisory roles as well as, a, you know, another uh, co-owner of another cannabis brand called Cali Crusher. And, um, and of course my most important role in, you know, as the founder of Grab. So, you know, this, you know, Grab is, is still, um, you know, takes up the majority of my time and, um, 
but it's you know but it's being run by a group of people now on a day-to-day -day basis that are absolutely brilliant and are you know taking it to a completely different level of uh of success did you bootstrap grab on your own yeah completely um you know we've never taken a penny of investment um and it was it was a long road to get there, but you know, twenty years. Um, and there are certainly times that I was entertaining taking on, uh, you know, investment partners. But it just never made sense when you kind of put the pen to paper about what you're getting. And and cannabis. I mean, I think that we've we've seen now with you know the cannabis markets being what they are that the the hype isn't all of what it seemed to be. And um, and I've kind of I, you know, I always thought that, and I thought, hey, the, you know, these people are chasing after something. This isn't going to be tech, you know, like this doesn't scale the same way, and it's going to be a lot more boutique, and um, and that's proven to be true. And so I'm really glad that we never compromised that entrepreneurial position. Um, I did take on a partner that has, you know, been in you know, in communication threads with you and I throughout this process, and his name is Brandon Miranda, and he, um, he and I grew up together. You know, we were kids playing baseball at the age of five. And so we've known each other forever. And uh, he came, uh, he became my partner in 2019. And it's been, you know, uh, a match made in heaven ever since. So pr prior to that, it was really um, just me kind of wading out into waters that I didn't really know about. Interesting. And from when you first started to 2019, was Brendan your partner? Was he involved in the company, or was, did he go off doing his own thing? He was off doing his own thing. He's had an incredible successful, incredibly successful career himself, um, both you know in uh, in technology and in kind of fragmented industries, and has had a lot of his own success. And and when uh, you know he kind of came to me and said, "Hey, Dave, I, I you know I'm looking for you know to find a company." First of all, he, he's you say, has he, was he involved in the company? Yeah, because he's been my best friend since since we were five. So like, you know, I have always, you know, kept him in the loop of everything that was always going on with Grav. And he's always been a close confidant. So he knew he was up to speed for the most part, you know, when he stepped foot in the door the first day. But um, but he, he did have his own, you know, very successful career before joining Grav. Has Grav over the last 19 years been 100% e-commerce? Oh, no. Um, in fact, quite the opposite. Only until, not, not until 2017 did we ever sell a single thing online. So Grav, you know, you have to, from in, 20, in 2003, when, when, when I kind of started thinking about this, um, that was the year that Tommy Chong went to jail for selling bongs online. And so you know, when I made my first sale of the gravity bong at the Gravitron um, in 2004, I I very quickly learned that this was never going to work on the internet because the United States had just shut down all e-commerce businesses in this category, in the, in the, in the cannabis paraphernalia category. And and frankly, since, you know, since that day, I've been working against, you know, to fight against federal U.S. federal paraphernalia laws um, my entire career, um, which is a whole side story in of itself. But um, but no, the 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 business was always to 
design, manufacture, and distribute directly to whole, you know, retailers who would then sell it to end users. So in our case, the retailers in the United States, you know, 99% of them are head shops or smoke shops. Interesting. And were you constantly having to fight against the grain before cannabis became legal? Like how could you guys grow and was the market even growing or was it just the same for the last 50 years? Um, yeah. Um, it's a long story. How much time do we have? <laughs> as long as you have. So, um, when I first started 2003, 2004, the cannabis market to the extent that came in, mean, there was no recreational or, you know, there was no recreational cannabis as we know it, it was all very illegal. And, you know, of course in California, they had Prop 215, which basically, you know, which which was a, a medical um, provision in the states um, in the state law that allowed you to to grow and sell, um, you know, but not very, you know, not a, no real regulatory framework. And so California was certainly the most advanced market. But when it came to selling, I mean, the pipes and the pipe shops that we were selling to were really the front lines of cannabis, right? Like it was, you know, probably where a lot of people met their you know, you know, got connected to whoever they could get weed from. And, um, and there were, you know, they were very, they're, they're very activist driven stores. I really didn't understand how to get involved in this. You know, I was, it was a very local thing for me. I was actually where I, I didn't take a, I didn't go full time in this for at least two years, before you know, before I started, I was working for, so, you know, for a few friends doing odd jobs. And then, one of the guys that I was getting parts from to make the Gravitron, this gravity bong that I started selling locally here, like, you know, in Austin and Houston, because my family's from Houston and that's where I grew up. So I was, you know, taking a quick step back. I started, I, you know, I designed and made this, this gravity bong that was just this, you know, to the Gravitron. And it still is like one of our top selling SKUs in the entire catalog. And, you know, in Australia, they call it a bucket bong. Um, and, in the US, they call it a gravity bong. I, I took this gravity bong design, I commercialized it. I, you know, um, I put it in a fancy box, put a barcode on it, called it the Gravitron, and um, and started walking around Austin and Houston, knocking on head shop stores saying, hey, look, I've got this gravity bong. Do I have one here? Yes, oh, I'd love to see it. I don't have one to show you, but we can cut to it. Um, but I I started making these things, but the there was a part that I needed that I couldn't make myself. I was I was taking a, a, a wine a vase, it was a flower vase and a wine bottle and I was cutting the bottom off the wine bottle and I was putting these a down stem in a bowl into the top of the wine bottle. And the down stem in the bowl, I didn't know how to make. You know, I was just kind of putting all this together. And so I, one of the head shops that I went to said, oh, I know a guy who wholesales these down stems and bowls. He can sell them to you. So I established a relationship with this guy, Freddie. So Freddie says to me about a year into buying from him, hey, you need to come to this bong convention. And like, this seems normal now, but like at the time you're like, there's a bong convention? Like no way there's a bong, a there are enough people that make bongs to have a convention for this? No way. And so, you know, sure enough, in August of 2005, I pack a bag with, you know, 
five gravity bongs in it and enough, you know, clothes to get me through three days of this thing. And I show up and sure enough, like they, you know, they gave me a little table. I didn't even bring, I brought like a little banner and a notebook and I put these five bongs down on the table. And I mean, it was a room, it was a, it was a big convention center room. It was at the Stardust in, in Las Vegas, which no longer exists. And it was the most incredible two days of my career, right? It was like, you know, I ended up at that show. I think I went into that show with like 10 different accounts. So, you know, the accounts are my, you know, retailers that I sell these to. And I came away from that show with 300 accounts. It was like, oh my God, this is like, I have, you know, I found product market fit. And I mean, to the extent that people were walking up to me and were like, okay, hey, do you, do you this is amazing. I'll take a dozen of them. Um, do you take COD? And I was like, yep, I definitely take COD. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, and they're like, okay, great. Are you gonna give me a receipt? Like <laughs> yes, I I write one page of the notebook, tear it off, write another page for my own record, <laughs> tear it off, give one to them. It was uh, it was it was a joke. I had no idea what I was doing, but it was you know. But then I knew I had a business. I mean that that from that day forward, it was like okay, I'm gonna do this. And so in 2005, I started making. You know, I, I started selling to all you know to stores all across the country, shipping to them. I immediately had a production problem. And I also wanted to keep making other things, but I kind of kept my head down making these gravity bunks for another couple of years because I was really just underwater. I couldn't, I, at that same show, I learned about a couple of trade magazines that were still, this is how people were getting the word out about themselves. So there was, mm, there was only one that I advertised in, but there were two in the market. This one that I advertised in called HeadQuest. Um, I mean, I remember it was about $700 a month for a full page ad. And I just started taking out ads at HeadQuest and those, and, you know, and, the, and the orders just kept coming in. This is, you know, the HeadQuest would ship their catalog, you know, their magazine out to all these 5,000, they say 5,000 head shops across the country. The head shops would flip through them and see, you know, this all glass gravity bong and they would call me. And that's how I did business for an embarrassingly long time. Like I bet you that we were in HeadQuest using that exact model until 2012. Like it was a long time. Interesting. So people were, you know, they, I, had to, I had to have a fax number. Like even until 2012, when people were still like way past that, like these head shops still would fax their orders in. For real. <laughs> That is insane. For those who don't know, COD is cash and delivery. In those situations, would you actually drive to those locations and, and deliver or did you just ship it and, and have them invoice you? There's another great question. So no, of course I couldn't drive. I mean, you have a very disparate uh, ge geography here. You know, they, they, they're, they're all over the place. These, the, the, the smoke shops, you've got, you know, maybe one or two in every small town across the country. And, you know, the U.S. is a very big country. And so you've got, you know, you can't drive there. So you have to use the common carriers, UPS, FedEx, et cetera. And so, of course, very quickly, you realize, like, I can't, if UPS and FedEx both have programs to deliver COD, but the way that program works is that you send it COD and then they take the check 
before they drop the boxes and then they process the check and then ultimately deliver the check to you about three weeks later and then you can deposit the check, which is obviously not a very you know, advantageous cash cycle. So you want to reduce that cash cycle. They offer a program, hey, for 1% of all of your you know, trans transaction, you know, for one percent transaction fee, we will front you this, you know, the the check. You know, so if you send an order for a thousand dollars, we will, you know, give you, you know, nine hundred and ninety dollars. I think that's what that works out to. And um, and we'll deposit in your check in one day, or deposit in your account in one day. And so that's inevitably what I did. And then you know, we were wrestling with that. I mean, I, I distinctly remember negotiating those COD fees all the way up until 2014 to 2015. It was just, I mean, because there are that many people still on CODs. And frankly, I was I was kind of fighting at the end, you know, before CODs went away completely, I was kind of fighting for them because the credit card fees by, by, uh, by comparison are significantly more, right? Like you're giving away 3% with you know, the credit card fees. So I was like, yeah, let's keep doing COD people. Um, so it was great. So cool. So I just searched up the Gravity Bong because I haven't personally seen it. I've been on your website, but it's let me share my screen so the audience can see it as well. So this was a Gravitron. Did it always look like this, Dave? Or was it, is this like a recent, is this the latest version? Let me see if I can find, oh no, I can't scroll your screen, but um, the older version is the one in the top left, the top left corner. It's got, it doesn't have a ground joint. So there's a, you know, that just to the left, the one you're, you're on right there. Um, so if you, yeah, if you go like, that's the newer version that, that you're, you know, that you're highlighting right now, that's got a, 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 a tooled fitting. And then Dave, so you would literally bring this product to conventions and people would just be ordering it like in like dozens and like, was it because it was new? Was it because people haven't seen it before? Like, why was it just flying off the shelves? You were buying full page ads and it would just be selling like hotcakes. Yeah, I mean, we, it's pretty simple. I and mean, there was just nothing like it on the market. It was, it, people were, the, you know, the initial feedback when I used to take it around with me and show it to people is that, oh, they're like, oh, I can, yeah, yeah, you know, like a bucket bong or a gravity bong, I can make that myself. It's like, yeah, well, you can make any bong yourself, right? <laughs> like you can, you can take an Ozarka water bottle and make a bong out of it. Like, you know, it's just fine. You, just, you know, I made it nicer and it was always pretty affordable. So that was the other thing. I mean, the, you know, everybody's very sensitive to price point. And, and so I think that initially these were about 40 to $50 retail. And I was also able to really, I mean, one of the, you know, from a entrepreneurial takeaway around, you know, for your audience for what it's worth. And this is what I advise all, all of my, you know, all of my entrepreneurial companies that I advise is like, you know, it's not about maximizing your profits. Like it's about, for me, it was always about maximizing the profits of my clients. So the head shops, if I could deliver to them a product that I knew that they could get better margin on than the other products in their store, that they were going to push my product more. And that was this magic formula that was like, oh yeah, I can, I'm selling it to you for $20, but you can sell it for 50. Whereas everyone that everyone else showing up at that show was like, oh yeah, you buy my product for 10 and you sell it for 20. 
And, you know, everybody at a trade show is walking these booths and they're doing math in their head every, you know, and they're, they're very fast at it, right? Like, I know I can sell that for this much, that for this much. Okay. That, you know, if I buy thousand dollars that I'm going to turn that profit in one month for 1500 bucks, that's going to cover this much. Like they're, they're doing that, the, you know, that calculus as they're walking the trade show. And so when you give them a better value proposition with a product that they that they understand very quickly. Cause that's the other thing, you know, there was no, nothing abstract about this. Everybody that walked that trade show knew exactly what it was. The moment they walked past that booth, the next question is how much does it cost? The next question is how much can I sell it for? And when all of those things line up, you, you guarantee it's a guaranteed sale. You, you don't even have to sell it. Like there's, there's no, there's no like asking people to stop at your booth. And that's the one thing that's always been true across every Thing I've ever sold is that if you if you set it up the right way, you don't have to sell anything. You you just have to you just have to put on a smile, and and it's and it works usually. And then were there like no competition for that next ten years? Like no other competitors came in with the same product, and you had like a monopoly on this gravity ball. No, definitely not. I mean, there were people that came in and there was no protecting this at the time. I mean, the, you know, the USPTO, the, 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 um, the patent trademark office, they weren't accepting patent applications for bongs, right? So there's no patenting this thing. And, and yeah, we had plenty of, of people who were copycats, but I, I was able to get it out into the world very quickly and, 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 you know, kind of run for daylight, so to speak, you know, be, be, you know, have the first mover advantage and no one's ever really been able to take a, a, a real chunk away from this category. I mean, the other, the other thing that people don't talk about is that, and this was my, my mistake as well, is that I thought that I was going to boil the ocean with a gravity bong. I thought everybody's going to smoke out of a gravity bong. This is going to change the way people consume cannabis. You're never going to need another bong for your consumption habits. Well, it turns out that like a very small amount of people actually want or need to use a gravity bong. And so like the category is very small. I mean, even today, I'm guessing I can pull the numbers, but at best we sell 15,000 of these units per year, per year. So if they sell for, you know, 50 bucks, it's not even a million dollar product right? Like it's, it's a, you know, it's a pretty small category and, you know, flash forward, I realized pretty quickly. And, and, but you know, the nice part was I had established all of these relationships. I was, I was doing what I said I was going to do. I was, you know, saying, Hey, here's this gravity bong. It's 20 bucks. You're going to sell it for 50. It's going to sell one or two per month in your store. And you're going to look up at 12 months later and you're not going to have any on your shelf. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. It wasn't gangbusters for them. They didn't pay the rent with it. But when I showed up to the trade show 12 months later, they're like, hmm, sure enough, I'm out of them. Put in another order for me. And I delivered on time and I did what I said I was going to do with the quality that I said I was going to have. And so, you know, a couple of years later, when I showed up with this, you know, the next product, which was, I'm certain to have one of these, a one hitter. Yes. So I, I started selling tasters, this thing right here. It's a little one hitter that you smoke out of. And I made a little rack for it. And I brought this to the trade show and I was like, yeah, they're $2 and 50 cents each. And 
the shops were like, awesome, I can sell those for 10 bucks. And so they bought a tray of them. And then it was just gangbusters. These, you know, these things were, because the Gravitron actually got me in a deep hole. You know, I, when I came up for air, like in 2007, after like thinking I was going to boil the ocean with Gravitabongs, I was like, I don't know, $80,000 in debt. And I didn't have, you know, like my car was breaking down. <laughs> I didn't, you know, it was like nothing to show for it. I was like, okay, this might have been a fun run at, you know, trying to build a bong company. And um, and so I, I had to come up with something else. And that's when the Taster project started to to hit. And so I, you know, I'm skipping over a lot of stuff here, but like these things in six months of like just building little displays and trying to, you know, and, and navigating this, this, this other category completely got me out of debt. I was, I was buying new machines and hiring more glass blowers. And I mean, we were selling like, I don't know, 25,000 of these a month at $2 and 50 cents. I mean, it was just like, it eclipsed the gravity bong, like in a matter of months. And I was like, Oh, I need to sell all these people a whole bunch of other stuff. And that's when it was off to the races. Like, you know, go try to find, find more glass blowers to make more designs, to afford to hire more glass blowers, to, you know, expand the catalog and buy more machines and get a bigger space. And, um, and it was just a, a, an incredibly wild ride from 2007 until 2000. Well, still till still today. I mean, you know, the, the, the hustle is different today. And, and the industry has changed significantly and we're still, I think we're going to see a lot of change over the next couple of years too. But, you know, those, those years where it was like, Hey, just design it and make it and put it in a catalog and bring it to a trade show and sell it. were like, you know, a, a different animal. I mean, once we got to scale, basically after, after this, this taster project started to take off. And we started, and I started to bring up more glass blowers and, and machines and, you know, and um, design more products in about in 2010, 2010, I remember breaking the barrier of a $2 million back order, meaning like I was, I was seven months behind on orders and I couldn't keep up. And it was like, you know, my customers were just so upset because I couldn't feel it was like, you know, when someone calls you, you're like in January and you're like, yeah, I think I might be able to fulfill that in August. This isn't like fashion where they're expecting that as a buyer, right? These are people who are like, I want this right this second. And, um, and there was just no end in sight. And so at that point in 2010 was when I realized I needed to do more than just hire more glass blowers, buy more machines, get a bigger space. Like there, that was never going to go fast enough. And so starting in January of 2011 is when I took my first trip over to Asia, where I was able to, you know, really find where like the center of the glass making universe is. And that is in Hebei in China. And it is literally where the world's borosilicate comes from. Um, I mean, there are places, you know, other places on the planet that where people make nice glass things but as far as like you know the volume of glass of borosilicate glass it 90 percent of it's there and so that's if you're going to build a glass company that is where you must go and so i found it and you know from there i started building it 
you know, building my business from a manufacturing perspective in China. Um, and so it's been over a decade of working with Chinese manufacturers. And so we've had to learn how to adapt and, and, uh, and change to that environment. Was it hard going to China without speaking Chinese and building those relationships and finding trustworthy manufacturers that you can rely for these big orders and they're not going to you know, fumble halfway and pull out? It's like you know about that. <laughs> um, the, uh, yeah, I mean, if, if anybody tells you that going and trying to find a, a vendor in China is easy, they're, you know, they're lying to you. It, it is absolutely the hardest thing to, to build is a, a really, you know, trustworthy, longstanding relationship where you have transparency in what's going on. And, and that's, and even when you think you have it, you probably don't. We've learned that the hard way a lot of times. But we have diversified our manufacturing, you know, uh, relationships over the years, and we have really great partners over there. That you know, you know as you grow in, in any category, you you're able to pay for services that you wouldn't otherwise, you know, have been able to pay for. So yeah, at the beginning, I was ordering like like five thousand dollars a month, you know, stuff, and you know, kind of dipping my toe in the water and seeing what that relationship was like. And then once it became $50,000 a month, then I started being like, hmm, maybe we should, you know, come over there more often and see what's going on. And then once it's like, you know, you know, hundreds of thousands a month and you're like, okay, well, you know, let's, uh, let's hire someone there who is our guy on the ground. And now that's, that's what we have. And the guy you have on the ground, is he a local Chinese person or is he from the States? Yeah, local Chinese. And, you know, there's, this is like, you know, again, skipping over a series of relationship building that got us to this person who we can know and trust and have, you know, and, and has visited us and we visited them and had many, you know, great times together and is a very trustworthy relationship and is not, and is incentivized the right way. I mean, all, all of those things are, are obviously very important to, you know, to establishing any sort of business relationship is, you know, he is, he is not paid on the volume of our orders. He is responsible for a lot of logistics. He's responsible for communications. He's, and he's a really, he's not necessarily doing this just for the money. He does this for a lot of, he does this for other companies. We're a client in his list. It's, it's a very, you know, symbiotic relationship. With your top selling SKUs, are you manufacturing it from one manufacturer or have you diversified or is it one SKU per manufacturer you don't diversify on one SKU? Well, yeah, I mean, the interesting part is that we don't really even have a, a single SKU that dominates the catalog. So, you know, if, if you're like, you know, what's our top selling SKU, it changes on a, you know, it changes pretty seasonally. We've got, um, We've got a few SKUs that are obviously better than others, but I don't think that there is a single a single product that we sell that represents more than three percent of our overall revenue. So, you know, for better or worse, I know, I know it's a it's it's a surprising number, but um, 
but it's not, you know, it, it's, you know, we're, we've been lucky that way. I mean, you know, if, if one product ends up not, you know, if we can't get material for one product, that's, then it's not going to sink us. And that's happened a lot where we just haven't been able to get something back in stock. I'd say that our biggest limitation actually is that every single product in our catalog is handmade. Like there is no machine automation in this. A lot of people think that in fact, like even cannabis companies that come to us, you know, in the, you know, who are supposed to be some of the most sophisticated cannabis companies they come to us and are like, well, um, yeah, can you just put our name on that pipe? And you're like, how do you think this works? Like, no, no, we can't. You, there's a reason why you can't just call up the, you know, Owens, Illinois and get your name on a pipe. You have to like, you have to, it's a whole, it's kind of like, can I get my name on a couch? Like, no, 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 it's, it's a piece of furniture. It's handmade. Like you have to, someone's making it. It's not a machine. There's no, so like, there's a, you know, a lot of people, you know, kind of want to call it like a pint glass. They want to be like, oh yeah, that's, you know, it's just like a pint. I just put my name on it. Like, it doesn't work that way. There's no volume in pipes. Like, you know, I told you that we sell like 25,000 of these a month and we probably still do about that. But even at that rate, like that's a very small amount of anything to, you know, you can't do, you can't create any automation with such low volumes. And so, yeah, across our catalog, we've got 300 plus, you know, items that we sell. All of them are different shapes and sizes and, you, you know, and colors. And so that requires different, you know, different tools, different machines, different raw material in order to make all of those unique designs. And so every single one of those has to be, you know, not only touched by a human, but often touched by almost 10 people before it's completed. So it's a very high touch. It's, it's closer to jewelry than it is to boxes, right? Um, in fact, I often compare the pipe business to the jewelry business because the consumer journey is very similar if you think about i mean well you can even take that back to the manufacturing right like there's usually an you know an artistic designer that is sending this design over to a you know low cost of labor country to get you know to get manufactured in some in some mass quantity, probably you know, not enough to ever put into an automated process at all. And then shipped over to, you know, mostly mom and pop businesses, jewelers, where they're going to put it into a small, a small retail establishment under glass, you know, same as pipes, where they where some where a customer walks into a store and is very uneducated about their what they're actually looking for. They're just like, mm, I think I want a pipe. This is how I consume. The person behind the counter has an immense amount of power to tell you who made the pipe, how it was designed, what colors it's going to change. They take it out with a black felt cloth. They put it on top. They show you this, this, pretty, this pretty pipe on a glass felt pipe in a cloth. And then they, and, they, and they kind of woo you into buying this pipe. It's a very, it's almost the exact same business. And, uh, and so I've interviewed a lot of jewelry store owners over the years and, and, and kind of asked them, Hey, where's the, where's your business going? Um, and that's a whole other story. <laughs> Do you manufacture all 300 SKUs yourself or are there some products that 
you source from other brands? We mean we 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 do everything ourselves. Wow. Completely vertical. So we so we design the pipe. We often make the pipe in-house. So we have got a very sophisticated design studio with the best designer in the world, Micah Evans. And Micah, it you know, designs the pipe both physically and in CAD, you know, and will often 3D print the pipe so that we have, you know, so you know, so we can match it to the physical sample. And then we'll send the physical sample and the 3D model to our partners in China, they will make samples. They'll send the samples back. We'll make modifications back and forth, back and forth until we get it right. And then we will design the boxes and we'll design the inner packaging and the cop and we and we write the copy and then they package it and then they ship it over directly to our warehouse where we receive it and we fulfill every single order direct to consumer and wholesale. And we do all of our own in-house photography, all of our own video all every single there's nothing that we outsource full stop except for except for pr which is how we how we got to you so um but yeah obviously we can't we can't be perfect to everything but uh but we're we're, we're we try to keep it very insulated now usually with vertical integration it sort of works really well where you have a product that you can scale and it can hit mass market but you're in a unique situation where you have so many SKUs, each SKU is less than 3%. It's like, how do you scale that? How do you even get economy of scales and get better pricing and, and scale that? It, it, it is, it's a great, it's a great point. And I don't know that we have the biggest appetite to scale exponentially. I mean, we we run a really, I think, pretty big business now. Um, it's comfortable. We love what we do. We're still very passionate about it. It still kicks off a lot of cash. And um, and at a certain point in life, I mean, you know, maybe you know, maybe I'm not ambitious enough, but I just I want to be. I want to just love what I do. I don't want to have to worry about you know, building a company to scale. I know that my competitors aren't going to build a company to scale because frankly, we're the biggest in the world. And this is about as big as this can get. I mean, I shouldn't just, you know, roll over and say that we don't have, you know, some aces up our sleeve, but I can tell you that within this company and this strategy, which is still going to be a category that we believe to be about a billion dollar category of which we, you know, we're confident that we have a reasonable market share in already. You know, and when I say billion dollar category, I mean like retail dollars. So like, you know, with the majority of our sales being wholesale, a, you know, reasonable majority of them being servicing distributors, meaning that like, if we sell something for, $20 that they sell for 50. There's a, if we service a distributor, the, the distributor has to sell it for 20. So oftentimes we'll sell it to the distributor for 15. They'll sell it for 20 and then someone else will sell it for 50. So there's, there's, a, you know, there's channel mix that we, you know, that we consider within the company that or within the business to get to a blended margin where we feel like we've got adequate market share. The company is still profitable. We're building a brand. We have, we want to have, you know, a brand voice. We want to affect the culture and 
we want to do it in a way that supports our people, right? I mean, we have, <laughs> it's not a huge company. I think we've got 45 people that work for us in the States and, you know, building a culture that makes everybody want to stay. I mean, it's, it's been amazing. I mean, people just haven't left on their own accord. I mean, we, we, we have to, we have to shoo them out the door if we want them to leave. It is, it's amazing. And, um, and we love it and we love our people. And so we're, you know, you know I, I had a, a very close friend of mine who owns a, a, a chain of head shops in central Texas once told me, he's like, the sign of my success was very clear the moment that I, that, that it first happened. And that was when his employees started buying their own houses. He was like, that's how I, that, that was my sign of success. And I, I feel the same way. Like that, that's, that is the most, there's nothing more that you could be proud of as a, as a, as an entrepreneur than when your employees are buying their own homes. That's awesome. So, I mean, do I need to, it was all kind of a question of how do you scale? And the truth is that like, I think that we're going to figure it out as we go. And, and right now it's true. I don't, you know, there's zero chance that we're going to double in size next year. So, um, you know, you just kind of, I'm okay with that. So I have around, all my employees are from the Philippines and we have 10 to 15 full-time employees from the Philippines to get them to a point where, you know, they're sort of really comfortable with where they're at and with the company. Is it just a matter of time and proving that, Hey, like you've worked with us for, you know, 10 years, you can expect to continue being with us for another 10 years. Or is it a matter of trying to increase the salary so that they have more money? Like, is it a mix of both? Like my oldest employee now is only around three to four years. Is it just a matter of time? Yeah, I think it's a matter of time. I think, I think that they, you know, um, I'm not sure if I understand what you're specifically asking, but for me, the, you know, this, these, the, the employees that have, have stuck around, have stuck around because they've been really, they've jumped around. Like I, I there's, there's never been anybody that's, that started out in sales and is still in sales, right? Like, you know, pretty much every single person who's still here started out in the warehouse or started out like making pipes or started out and now is, you know, a VP of finance. Like literally there are people like that. Um, that have just been the right culture fit and they had the capacity to learn and to build and to, um, and to grow with us. And, you know, sometimes that takes patience and frankly, a lot of honesty, you know, along the way, because I think that's where a lot of people get, get tripped up is that, you know, you either come in to a position overtitled or meaning like, oh yeah, I'm going to come in as the VP of marketing. And it's like, well, you're maybe a, you know, a director level or what, I mean, whatever it, I mean, it's not a bad, you know, director's great level. I can't, I'm trying, trying to make a bad analogy here, but point is, is that, um, you know, sometimes you get hired above your rank. Other times, you know, you are, you know, you're struggling because you're like, I want to, you know, advance faster and you're not advancing faster. I think that there's different things that build loyalty. And frankly, there's, you know, it's, it's rare to find people that are comfortable and ambitious. So that's, that's the magic to find.
And I don't think that there's any secret formula to finding them, honestly. Like arrows got a million hacks on like finding great people, asking the right questions in interviews. And it's like, at the end of the day, you just kind of have a good feel. So. To get to that core team that you have now of like 45 people, did you have to go through like 200? Was it like a numbers game? And then it's sort of the ones that survived and stayed, they stayed cause they could sort of keep up with the growth and they were ambition, they had the right mix. Was it a numbers game or were you, a lot of these people, you didn't fight like it was the 45 that you hired and they're still here? You know, that's a great question. I, I, I would love to know how many people we've actually had work here in total. And over almost 20 years, I would hope it's probably 200, but that'd be a great stat actually to know exactly how many people um, have worked at any given company. And like, you, know, you look at a company like Facebook, they probably had a million employees now, whatever it is, like people who've actually once at one point in time been paid by that company. Um, and I would assume probably 200, but, but, you know, the better question is, have we gone through a thousand? Right. And, you know, I, I can tell you that we have not, right. Like we have had, we've always taken an approach of giving people a chance and maybe too many chances over the, over their careers. But there's, you know, I think that people, you know, I believe in that, in that three strike rule, right. You know, the three strike rule, like, you know, you tell someone once you tell something twice, usually on the third time, third time, you don't have to tell them they're going to leave on their own. Right. Like, and, and so, you know, we've always done that. And I think that on this, you know, after the second one, people have figured it out and, or we've found the right fit for them. You know, it's, it's, it's a, you know, get it capacity, you know, get it, want it capacity to do it. You know, you ever heard that one too? Like, you know, it's, you know, so if someone is a salesperson, they get the job, they, you know, have the, you know, they want the job, but, they have, you know, four kids at home, they can't travel, they don't have the capacity to do it, you know, or they want the job, they have the capacity to do the job, but they just don't get it, right? Like there's, you know, typically people are missing these things. And, and sometimes you just have to move people around to find the magic fit for them, you know, because no, because I, I, I mean, I still joke today, like, I'd love to know what I'm going to do when I grow up, right? Like everybody has this, right? Like I, I don't, it's, it's such a joke. You go to the guidance counselor at school and they're like, Oh, you should be an engineer. Right. And you're like, I don't want to do. And, um, and I think that most people don't know what they're, that, what they're good at until it hits them in the face. And then all of a sudden they're like, Oh man, I get this. And I have the capacity to do this and I really want it. And boom. Right. And it's just, and then they're off to the races. It's like those, those, I can't believe I'm blanking. It's late here. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's like any sort of class that you take in college, right? Like the ones that are hard are hard because not because you're stupid. It's because you're not interested in it or you don't want, you know, you don't, you just don't get it or whatever it is. But the ones that come easy to you are easy to you for a reason. Cause you get it and you want it. You have the capacity to do it. It's the same thing. Right. And I think that we lie to ourselves that we know what we want when in actuality, it's like, Oh no, no, no. I, I you usually want the things that you're really good at doing. Interesting. And then the thing that I thought of when you were talking about the counselor 
the question I wanted to ask is like that journey to find your purpose, to find happiness. I guess the best way is probably just to share my experience. Like I remember when I was 18, I was hungry. I did whatever I could to make money, was able to make a bit of money and I sort of grew it. Then I started putting my foot off the accelerator once I had a few salespeople in my team. And then over the last two years, as I put my foot off the accelerator, the company just started dying, things slowed down. There wasn't enough leads for the salespeople. So they went off and and found other jobs. And sort of now I'm sort of at a point where my foot is back on the accelerator. I'm pushing things harder than ever. And I think those two years I was trying to just figure out what I was passionate about, trying to chase happiness, travel, figure myself out because I was sick and tired of talking about e-commerce and drop shipping every day. I filmed a video every single day for like a thousand days and I didn't want to talk about that anymore. And then sort of now I'm at a point of just doing what works, sort of trying to find happiness in the work and not trying to expect the work to be fun every day. That's sort of where I'm at. And, and I want to ask since you sort of been at this for the 20 years, what will the next 20 years look like for me? Will I be doing that for the next 20 years? Will I keep going back and forth in that pendulum? I hope not. I mean, there's, there's, I think that the, the things that are going to make the biggest impacts on your day to day are probably not going to have anything to do with the business. Like, you know, there's, we're bombarded with all of these, these success stories all the time. And like why you need to keep your foot on the gas or why you need to, you know, and yeah, what your metric is for success. And, you know, and then you have a kid and like the whole world blows up in your face. Right. Or, you know, or a parent dies or something or, or, or something, you know, life event happens when, you know, and it just like kind of, resets your whole worldview and you realize like hey you know what which which things really matter right now and how much you know what dream am i chasing here do i want to how do i want to be remembered and by who and so i think that from a you know that and and if any entrepreneurs out there looking at this thinking to themselves like hey this is all about the money like you, you you're just completely wrong like it has nothing to do with the money the money is just a vehicle to get you to the next you know to answering the next question and so i hope that the next 20 years does not like create you know it does is not that vicious cycle of taking the foot off the pedal pushing it back on pushing it back on it's you know when you get excited about something you're going to push that pedal as hard as you can and that's awesome and fun and you'll ride that and when things are shitty, then take your foot completely off the pedal because those are the moments, like th- those are actually going to probably happen less than the exciting push on the pedal moments. And it's like wallow in the downside because the down moments are, are far fewer than the high ones usually, right? Because by nature, you're probably wired, you know, all the people watching this are wired as these entrepreneurs who are, you know, rose-colored glasses, everything's an opportunity, go, 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 go. And so, you know, you know, we, you, everyone's like, hey, pick yourself up. Don't let, you know, don't get broad, you know, blindsided by the, the boulder that's about to hit you. But I say like, hey, yeah, let the boulder hit you harder. 
because like you know you you mess up when you don't learn from the from the times when you're uh you know when your foot isn't on the gas right given that your last 20 years there was a lot of periods where you just hit the gas really hard because things are really exciting does that mean the last 20 years you've just been always sprinting trying to catch a breath and it's always been one milestone after another and it's just been like just like when you had that seven month backlog it was like it was good but like you had to like really work all the time just to clear that backlog go to china figure things out has that been the journey for the last 20 years yeah but you know it, it's it has but i think that for me and i hope it is the same for everybody else that like it never felt like work like it was never not every every turn although there were challenges the hardest parts were the people parts right like all of those parts of like oh man i've got to get the back you know, the hardest parts were like oh this person's gonna you know got just got arrested and i need to go like bail them out or like you know and it, sorry an employee an employee got arrested you know or like somebody is quitting because of some stupid thing like you know the the people part is the hardest part it's not it's usually not the part that is like these business problems the business problems you know you're on a seven month backward guess what all of your competitors wish you were wish they were you, right? So you're sleeping pretty nice at night. I mean, yeah, you got people, you know, pissed off customers, and you're worried they're going to leave you for a competitor. But you know, you're sitting in a pretty good spot. You know, you you know, you've got to go over to China to you know to expand your operations. Oh man, poor you! <laughs> like, like yeah, you're going hard on the gas, and it's the most fun you'll ever have. And um, you know, and then there's of course some some down moments, but the I don't remember the down moments. All I rem all I remember are, the, are are just sprinting as fast as as fast as I could for for 15 years, and it was a wild ride, and I hope I get to do it again. Getting to that point where you know it never felt like work, Dave. Do you think you just found the exact thing and what you made for straight away, or did you just have a a, a higher level of gratitude and perspective that allowed you to be like, hey, like I'm in a very fortunate situation. This is amazing. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, the the latter. I mean, I, I've I've always had that mentality of like, of hey, it's either going to work or it's not. If it doesn't work, I'll figure something else out. Um, and so I've never really. I never let things get to me except for when I feel like an injustice, right? Like, you know, and, and that's also part of what has, it was inspiring about this category is that like, I mean, I think the whole world now understands that the, 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 the persecution of people who use cannabis is just the most absurd thing of all time. But, but and when I started, it was a real, it was a real passion play. And so, yeah, that, that kept me motivated for sure. And I don't know. I think that everybody has different motivators. And I think that it's easy in retrospect to say that you weren't motivated by the money. But I can tell you that when when we were in difficult cash positions, it was very stressful. And it's easy to brush over that stuff. And it's easier to come on this podcast and be like, ah, it's easy. No problem. I was all brushed off. No, no problem. But you know, there were times when I had to let people go because I wasn't going to be able to pay. I, mean, I could see that I wasn't going to be able to pay them, and there was, you know, I hurt real solid friendships because of it. And so it's it's hard. I mean, any, anybody who tells you it's easy is a liar. So, 
I appreciate that, David. I really appreciate your time. I know it's late over there. I love how we, we bounce through so many different topics and you're like a purebred entrepreneur. Like you've done everything. You, you've made the products, you grew a team, you, you figured out logistics and supply chain and you've sort of, you've done everything yourself and you've built this from scratch, bootstrapped and it's so motivating to hear and that's sort of why you've been able to just like attack all these different random questions that are completely different you know not not related because you've done everything and i love how honest and raw you are and this was such a fun episode no thanks for having me i really appreciate it this was fun too and you, you do a great uh you do a great interview i'm i'm very impressed it's very uh it's fun not not everybody uh is this good at interviewing so uh you've obviously been working at it and i appreciate it Thank you, Dave. Dave, where can people find more about you, follow you along on your journey, follow Grave? What's the best, where should people go? Uh, please go follow Grav Labs on Instagram. I, I am, uh, I'm pretty quiet, although you can follow me on it, on Instagram also at Gravitron Dave. Um, I, I don't post much and spend most of my time with my kids and my family. So, um, but I'll, uh, I'll say what's up if you want to holler. Thank you so much, Dave. I really appreciate that. I'll link everything in the description below. Um, guys, if you made it this far, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Hopefully you guys learned something new. I had a lot of fun on this episode, so please let me know your thoughts, and I'll see you guys on the next episode. Peace.